and welcome. The song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. He's David Gibb. And you are listening to How Wrestling Explains the World. Now, we have an exciting topic this week. It's uh, Venture Brothers, which actually, uh, Dave, you were the person that introduced me to this show. So you must be pretty excited about this episode in particular. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I feel like you're officially giving birth to the baby that I put inside you like 10 years ago. So this is a really big day for me. (laughs) You've always been such a hopeless romantic with that kind of stuff. So for people who haven't seen the show, uh, we wanted to play a really quick clip to introduce it. What an honor it is to be working with the legend himself, Lee Dr. Venture, the guy who put the pro in a protagonist. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you. And, uh, sorry again about my man, Brock. No, no, my bad. I shouldn't come booming in here like the big bad wolf. When those new marching orders came down from the guild brass, I just thought, hatred? Why don't you swing the old welcome tank over to the Venture compound and give those kids a basket of howdy-do? Is howdy-do fruit? Okra! Yeah, me and the missus grow the hell out of it. Personally, I can't see. So you're not here to try to kill me then? Not yet, anyway. (laughs) That is just a meet and greet. Oh, hey, fancy! See, Dr. Venture, I've been at this a lot of years. The one thing I've learned is there's no good reason on God's green earth that arching has to be a completely unpleasant experience for either of us. Speaking of green earth, what do you got out there? Kentucky bluegrass? Ah, that is lush! No, that's my own special blend of Blue Ridge and Creeping Red. I'm gonna say it again, lush! So you you won't be tearing my roof off in the middle of the night or shooting at the guests attending my monthly book club? No, no, Amateur hour malarkey. I know the difference between arching and real life. Thank you. Hate to live, don't live to hate. That's my motto. Uh, so yeah, that is uh, from the third season of the show. It's a show, an episode called Home is Where the Hate Is. The main character of the show is Dr. Rusty Venture. He's a former boy adventurer. He's also the son of a late super scientist named Jonas Venture. And the actual Venture brothers are his sons, who you don't hear in that clip. Uh, they're very important characters in the show, but they, they're kind of the audience surrogate in a lot of ways, so you really don't get that much out of them. And they go on adventures with, uh, so it's uh, Rusty goes on adventures with Hank and Dean and their bodyguards, both of whom you met in the clip. The first bodyguard they have is Brock Sampson, voiced by Patrick Warburton, the one that's talking about his grass. He was for the first three seasons the bodyguard and then is uh, for the sixth season, which is the most recent one, the bodyguard again. But he's not really a bodyguard. He's more of like a caretaker, kind of mom for the boys because the boys don't have a mom, or at least we've never met the mom. And a lot of the attacks that are on the family in, end with like, you heard it, Doc saying, uh, sorry about my man, Brock. Please hold me. Oh, look, I'm pretty sure I missed the kidney. I mean, you could bleed to death in like four hours, but... Uh... I, I see a tunnel. I'm scared. Could you... Could you stroke my hair? Right, look, you are not gonna... Uh, could you sing to me? Could you sing a technotronic song? Maybe <laughs> pump up the damn... I don't know. What about move this? You know that one? The gravelly-voiced fellow who uh, brought the howdy-do is Sergeant Hatred, uh, and he takes over at the end of that season for Brock, who leaves to pursue other opportunities, basically. Like, he's still on the show, but he's no longer their bodyguard. Uh, The reason this is all this way is because, like in wrestling, everything is kind of booked, I guess would be the best way to describe it. Uh, They have two organizations who we'll get to in a little bit uh, that basically assign 
super villains to superheroes or super scientists, whatever your bag is, based on like compatibility and the different levels you are. And they don't really do anything once they become assigned to the person. Like the he literally shows up with like fruit for him to be like, hey, we're just going to be working together. And like later in that episode, he literally goes through the things that scare him the most. But since Rusty's been a boy adventurer since he was a child, nothing scares him, which we'll get into later. Uh, and we're going to get into a lot later because uh, there's a lot to unpack on this show. But I, I think that's where I wanted to start is like just the idea of the like planning, how like they're talking about what they're going to be doing and like, He's like, you're not going to just be showing up in my house. And he's like, of course not. Why would I do that? That's unreasonable. And I think that's what they do a really good job of establishing is the like willingness to pretend that they're not pretending to hate each other, even though they're clearly pretending to hate each other. And like specifically with hatred, he becomes their bodyguard. So like, is that something that uh, drew you to the show as a wrestling fan? Or did you just like happen to like the show for separate reasons and then get into it because of that. I don't think that I necessarily identified that uh, wrestling connection as something that, that drew me to the show originally. But the idea that, that we're all just playing roles is definitely, you know, I mean, that goes back, back to Shakespeare and stuff. But uh, that's something that I've always enjoyed thematically. And they definitely do that in this show. Like, even uh, there is an episode uh, where the monarch is holding the Bro- Brock and the boys captive as part of a deal to, to buy some time. Brock discovers that it is the monarch's birthday and as an act of sympathy, uh, kills a bunch of his henchmen to make his day more interesting. Party's over, monarch. So it's time I shut down this little tree fort of yours. Brock Samson, I had a hunch you were behind this. Your arrogance will be your undoing. I will get you, Brock Sampson! Numbers 18, 38, 40, and 31. Secure the prison level. Engineering! I want a steady stream of cyanide pumped into the vents of section one through four. Help! Oh, and Brock. What? Thank you. So there's there's little moments like that in the show where like they're playing these roles where they're set up as rivals, but at the same time they kind of really respect each other and they've been in the role so long that it's like you're my enemy, but at least you're my enemy. And we kind of live in this same world. So I always dug that. Yeah. And that's, that's a big part of it is that you're kind of all working together though. Like hate to live, don't live to hate is a really important thing for hatred. Like he's a really unhappy person. You find out a bunch more about him in the show because he comes a really prominent character in the show. His entire thing is he's been around forever. He just kind of wants to do this until he can retire basically. And he likes, there are other reasons why he wants to be nice to Dr. Venture, but for the most part, he just likes being a super villain and kind of wants to keep doing it. And the way to keep doing it is by like following the rules and, and planning. Like there's an, there's an episode where he arrives when they're doing a presentation for a day camp that they're running and then uh, doc is just like what are you doing you're not supposed to be here i'm trying to run a day camp my pursuit is right here wednesday 5 30 menace dr venture let me see that and i'm sorry about my man brock not as good with children as i am and they're getting to him okay here's your problem 5 30 a.m a.m looks like a fancy guy to find malice troop back in the hover tank and it sounds kind of stupid but like when you create these worlds that they've created, uh, you kind of have to do these things. And 
what I think is interesting is how they manage to make it feel like you're seeing stuff that's happening backstage without actually having a backstage, if that makes sense. Absolutely. No, I definitely get what you mean there. I also think it's interesting that there's a sense that this whole system that you were just describing, that it worked really well in the past. That's something that seems to go on throughout Venture Brothers. Like, in the past, this was somehow less hokey or people questioned it less. And it worked better because people question it less. But like now we're seeing kind of the end of this system working. We're seeing the end of this order and it's all falling apart and we're seeing all the seams and the seams are kind of where all the comedy in the show uh, really lie. Uh, along those same lines, I, I do have a clip about that basic idea of just like what happens when this stuff breaks down or when somebody comes in rather and says like, why do we have these rules? And it's actually, it is um, the monarch who is Rusty's real arch enemy, uh, who the guy, the guy who really hates him, like that's the crux of the show, is that he wants to arch. He wants to hate Dr. Venture specifically. Right. So he uses Dr. Venture's brother as part of like a loophole, which they get into in the clip, and then we'll start talking about that a little bit more, because I think that's the real meat of this idea of kayfabe for them is the like, you'll see. I'm your arch enemy. I'm not gonna use bungling boobs or meddling kids. It's not my style. That guy needs to get a thicker skin. Thicker skin? Poor Ned has skin that's three inches thick. Now, how do you think that makes him feel? Itchy? I, I don't know. Just keep it cat and mouse, not cat and missile. So it's a game? We fake fight? That's ridiculous. No, we sharpen our claws. It's like fencing. It's, it's about the art of the fight. Good. Well, I'm about to deliver my killing stroke. Then what? Then the guild steps up their game. You throw a rock, they throw a knife. You throw a knife, they come to your house when you're sleeping and murder your family. Look, Dr. Venture. I love saying. You call the guild and you get the damn robot. Yeah, like you can see a lot of the inner machinations of the guild, which is a really intricate backstory. But basically the guild and OSI are the people that are in charge of controlling everything. And what you see or you hear happening rather is Monarch literally explaining how this shit works to he is breaking he is breaking him into the business, as it were, which is what happens a lot in professional wrestling is that you have like guys who understand how the business works, work with the younger guys to be like, OK, this is how you make this looks real. This is how you do this. But like JJ doesn't really care to do that. JJ is um, an incredibly successful doctor. He is like the opposite of Rusty, who's kind of just a disappointment. JJ does a lot of stuff. He because he is the natural actual heir to like, Jonas Venture, who is this great American hero, like JJ ends up filling that spot. And like I said, the monarch uses JJ, like JJ's aggression and willingness to like break the rules to use like a loophole that allows if they go past a certain level of reasonable aggression to then attack their like in immediate family members. And it sounds convoluted on purpose it is a convoluted thing and i i think what's interesting about venture brothers is like you said is that breakdown of the fabric of everything is like how do rules apply for people who really genuinely hate each other and and i i think wrestling has real trouble with that because there's this like split that they can't figure out yeah well i think in wrestling there's kind of the issue of right in uh, the 21st century especially in the wwe you're not supposed to say i hate you so how are you supposed to have uh 
rivalries and storylines based on personal enmity and uh, stakes, the word we always come back to, uh, when people can't really express hatred. And I mean, like you said with the monarch, uh, hatred is what drives him. There's points in the show where his hatred for Dr. Venture is such that it like threatens to destroy the whole the whole system by which uh, this arching relationship is supposed to go down. Like he hates him with such focus and purity that it's like the most powerful force in their world. And that's something I think now that's kind of missing from wrestling. Wrestling feels a little neutered in uh, 2018 in that respect. Yeah, and they kind of are stuck on either side of it. They're stuck either like, how do you do the the, like, the Brett Sean thing uh, where they really hate Brett? Hart and Shawn Michaels really, 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 really hated each other in the mid-90s. They were huge rivals within the same company. Brett thought Shawn was going to replace him. We are going to be talking about them next week, so we're not going to focus too much on the actual, like, everything that happened. But a lot of the... uh, Just let it uh, understand that a lot of the show became about their actual distaste for each other. And it was good television, but it kind of... It was just not quite enough to get him over the top unless you were already interested. It was interested, interesting rather, if you were already interested in wrestling to see guys like break kayfabe, for lack of a better term. Yeah, it's definitely interesting on the, if you're watching a soap opera and uh, you suddenly start to believe that those two women are actually fighting each other over someone throwing a glass of water in the other one's face. Like suddenly... If there's something out there that makes you believe that it might actually be real this time, then there's renewed interest. But if you don't care about seeing two women fight on a soap opera to begin with, it's not going to hook you. Yeah, oh, totally, exactly. There was a barrier to entry, but what stopped, what didn't have a barrier to entry, and which is like on the other side of it, is what they did um, with Vince McMahon and Stone Cold Steve Austin, where they like, the level to which Stone Cold Steve Austin genuinely loves and reveres Vince McMahon is kind of cute. Like, it's almost adorable for a a, a hyper-masculine person to like express love for another man in the way that steve austin expresses love for vince mcmahon as a father figure as a friend as a brother like he they love each other and on television they hated each other with the fire of a thousand suns and it worked really well but the problem was it became so like over the top and convoluted that it just lost the thread oh yeah absolutely and that's what i was saying kind of about the monarch's hatred in uh in Venture Brothers as well is like there's that force and it's the most powerful force in the show but at the same time it's like a threat to everything because it's just so powerful and so destructive yeah and and what you see a lot is that you have these uh like pairings on Venture Brothers that are required by people higher up so what ends up happening is like for instance the monarch kills a bunch of his arch enemies like he's given a bunch of our enemies and murders them in straight cold blood you may have found my inner sanctum shut up now give us the key or the plans or whatever the hell you have i have a tank full of gentle cuttlefish give us the cuttlefish cuttle i can't do this oh you're so close sweetie Uh, just pretend he's dr venture give me that gun you abandoned me! You abandoned my hatred! I, I, I have cut off that. Look into my eyes! 
everything else in the show is kind of like varying levels of like whimsical or comical he's literally just murders people and i think the the way that they use the authority figures in venture brothers is also very interesting in a way that it's just not in just a big time professional wrestling like big time professional wrestling outside of vince mcmahon really focuses way too much on like evil authority figures and like bureaucracy and venture brothers focuses on those things but actually makes them like funny and interesting and that's sometimes the case for smaller promotions that aren't like the wwe so like uh chikara in philadelphia did a year-long storyline where they had an evil corporation come in and like disband them and then they had all of these shows happen all over the country or not all over the country, all of the region they were in. And they would drop hints for all of the, all of their super fans. And like people would go to these shows and they used the like corporate bureaucracy crushing art and, and whatever competition or whatever in an interesting way. So like it can be done in wrestling. It's just that between that and like the way they do authority figures which i think dave you can agree it's just the worst like it's the worst part about (laughs) professional wrestling now is the way that they do authority figures but it doesn't have to be that way on lucha underground which is on netflix but it's uh it usually airs on el rey there uh it's it's like a telenovela more than like a straight wrestling show and on that show they have a character named dario cueto and Dario Cueto is like an actual played by an actual actor, like a real actor with real credentials and like has been in acting things before. And I, I think what hurts the wrestling in general and, and for reasons we'll get into later uh, helps out Venture Brothers a lot is that like nepotism is the most important thing in wrestle, wrestling without like meaning to be. It's a, I've always liked this. It's a quote from the West Wing. Uh, it's about politics that uh, money is like water on concrete. It gets into every crack and every crevice. And that's kind of how nepotism is in professional wrestling. Like uh, every position you can think of from announcer to who's running the show to who's the star of the show can be dictated by whether or not you're related to the person. And there are reasons, right, Dave, that like people like engage in nepotism in wrestling? Well, I guess it has a strong historical tradition because, uh, you know, uh, wrestling was kind of like bands of local promoters who who only trusted each other as far as they could throw each other and, and t- trusted the talent even less, you know. So uh, if there was someone who was in your family, you know, if, if a wrestler was your son or your son-in-law, uh, you could trust them not to mess you around, you know, not to leave town when they had the title or not to be uh, difficult when you needed to lose to someone or whatever. So it originally just started with people trusted their family members, and usually the promotions kind of would grow around a certain family or a certain uh, kind of cabal or whatever of people. And it was all about, you know, uh, protecting those people and, and keeping outsiders away. So, I, but, but that grew as the companies got bigger and bigger and bigger, and you wind up with a situation like the AWA, right, where you have Vern Gagne as like God King for like 40 years, you know, uh, winning the title in his retirement match, for example, just the silliest examples of the person in charge being, you know, the hero of the show. Yeah, and, and like there are examples where it's not the worst thing, like the Gagne's, really, it could have been a lot worse. 
but it's never really, even with a McMahon's. And, and Stephanie, she seems like a good person. She seems like a capable businesswoman. I don't know if she's the best wrestling character, but like, I'm talking more specifically about like, corporate because at least that's also a publicly traded company like when you had in the 80s and 90s these like small time well not small time promotion but mid-sized promotions that like were only able to sustain themselves from month to month it was never a good idea because just because people knew that the Gagne's were never going anywhere it takes away this suspense and even if you were talented that's a problem like uh, well the crockets are like my favorite example because they're innocuous but also genuinely terrible (laughs) what do you mean when you say terrible just in terms of infiltrating things with nepotism uh yes just like the croc like um i think it's david but i could be wrong um Mm -hmm. is the one that does the announcing for uh, Mid South and and sorry Mid Atlantic and eventually WCW on the network. Right, yeah, that's David Crockett. He does it with uh, Tony Schiavone on a lot of the kind of some of the kind of golden era of uh, of Mid Atlantic stuff. D- Dave, it's so bad, it's unwatchable. <laughs> he clearly he's the baby his best friend though. He he's he he's, he stands for the same thing as the good guys. How can you not like that? Uh, it's terrible because he doesn't feel like he feels he stands for anything. He feels like he's reading from a teleprompter and like had seen someone talk about acting before that's what it looks like he's doing (laughs) it's and that was like and there are again another good version of that is vince mcmahon vince mcmahon he was not a good announcer but he was an announcer that was competent like it's not always the worst possible thing but it's never really a good idea and i i don't think anybody encapsulates that better than the von erics which are just like Holy shit. I mean, basically, there's one surviving member of the family, right? And we're talking of a family that had, what, seven kids? Or seven yes. family members? Somewhere, yeah. Somewhere in that region. I think Kevin, Kevin Von Erich of the Sons is the one who who's still alive. And he kind of lives, uh, I don't want to say in isolation, but certainly far away from the world of wrestling out in Hawaii. And it's And it's a situation where they kind of, the first death, of the oldest brother was uh it seems to have been just like food poison like very bad food poisoning or an untreated medical oh, man. that's a birthday st- that's a birthday story he he had a i uh i there's uh, i mean he he od'd on drugs uh, i mean i, I i've always I mean, that, the nice story is that he had food poisoning in japan but the rest of that story is that Bruiser Brody got to the hotel room first and, and flushed all his drugs before anybody else got there but i, I not that i was there obviously but but that's what I've heard. But that's like a normal, tragic 80s death. Sure, sure. I know what you mean. Yes, sure, sure. Yeah. Everything else that came after it basically is like suicide, suicide. I think there it wasn't exactly three. Two committed suicide and one overdosed on a tranquilizer. I mean, it's kind of like it was not a good situation. And a lot of that was the fact that they had this enormous burden on them to be stars to be the natural heirs the like the new fritz von eric or in in the case of uh like they kept uh david the the oldest was supposed to be the big star and then carrie the second oldest was supposed to be the big star and every single time it just it never worked out and they couldn't handle the pressure essentially um which 
happens a lot in wrestling, but for the Von Erichs in particular, that's always been one that like, that's why nepotism in wrestling is dangerous and not just bad for business. Yeah. The company didn't just fail because of it. The com- the, the, the family who thought they were positioning themselves to be stars forever, are actually the people who were hurt worse than anybody else in the end of it. So it was kind of the ultimate backfire scenario for nepotism. It does remind me a lot of like, all of the shit that Rusty has to go through when he's a kid. Because Rusty's, uh, like I said at the beginning of the episode, Rusty's dad is considered, like, one of the, like, great American heroes of the last 150 years. Like, he's a super scientist extraordinaire. He's saved the world countless amount of times. But he's also a really terrible person. Oh, I don't know. Sometimes I wish I could just be a normal kid and go out and play with kids my own age and stuff. The only people I get to hang out with are grown-ups. The only time I get to leave the compound is to go someplace creepy like the Bermuda Triangle. And then I get kidnapped by grown-ups. And I'm not even sure I want to be a super scientist when I grow up anyway. But I feel all this pressure because of my foot. It feels weird telling you all this stuff. Remember, Rusty, in here I'm your doctor, not your father. Now, let's get back to it, shall we? Uh, You were telling me how you're ungrateful for all the opportunities your father's given you, and you blame me for all your problems. Like, that's, that's a funny joke, like a visual joke, because he's, like, swimming in the background when Rusty's telling him his problems, and he comes into, tiptoes into the room as Rusty's finishing up. But, like, that's... Could you imagine being a child and actually having to deal with that while you're also being like he tells a story to Dean, I believe, about how every single morning Action Man, who we'll meet later in the episode, would take an empty gun and click like shoot it into his skull every morning to like wake him up in a state of fear. Like he had a really really messed up childhood which is why he turns into a person that does this kind of stuff uh which this is i just made a greatest hits compilation basically um he makes a thing called the joy can which allows you to like relive your best memories and like solve all of your problems through like an immersive emotional and physical experience um but how he makes it is a little um, iffy on the ethics. What the hell is this thing made out of? Nothing. Come on. All right, fine. I might have used a few unorthodox parts. Just tell me one. An orphan. A what? <clears throat> an orphan? Did you say an orphan? Yeah, a little orphan boy it's powered by a forsaken child (laughs) sorry uh and that's just like that's one of the first couple of episodes you meet rusty and you understand pretty quickly that he like operates on a different level and part of it's that he just never learned the proper ethics and part of it is he has seen some shit my father made me kill a man kill a man with a house key i was 10 he uh the main thing you learn about rusty on his time as a boy adventurer is that the reason his father took him in all of these adventures is because he's very tiny and therefore could like stop traps and stuff like that but he would constantly get kidnapped so he would be held against his will 
which like really not good and it like it, it led to a person that did also did stuff like this hey pop why is the top of that guy's head black not black hank african-american the top of that guy's head is african-american <gasps> dad why is the top of this guy's head african-american because brock came in his original cranium and i had to use whatever fit so brock killed him in and you brought him back to life? That's right, boys. Your father's beaten death at her own game. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. Don't think of me as your father, please. He, like, makes a Frankenstein. Adventurestein. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Adventurestein. You're totally, you are totally right. <laughs> well, I think it's just, that's kind of the ultimate example of, like, the 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 total arrogance of intellectualism that he kind of has inherited from his father like his father was the ultimate archetype of the kind of like mid-century sterile uh genius but side of sort of emotionally dead on the inside scientist type that you think of in like i don't know like uh early 60s disney shorts and stuff like that where he's like or, or like the professor uh from uh from powerpuff girls kind of thing you know what i mean where he's He's impossibly brilliant, but he's also emotionally broken. And the show presents that and they make it in very clear that that's not cute. And that, that sort of cold, intellectual, male-centric uh, way of looking at the world, like really, really uh, screwed up Rusty. And it's something that he is still acting out every single day. Yeah, and in, in a very literal sense, like um, up until, uh, spoiler alert, the show's been out for like 15 years so don't feel that bad with this, this spoiler alert this specific episode's been out for like 10 um he has clones that get destroyed but he has clones he builds clones of the boys because as he says look if you have a clumsy child you make him wear a helmet if you have death prone children you keep a few clones of them in your lab i think that's like one of the he does love his boys but he does not he he creates clones to like allow himself detachment from that and from the legacy that like kind of weighs on him yeah, he has used what is legitimately an incredible life's work this cloning program to to provide himself with emotional detachment from the act of parenting that you know he he doesn't have to worry about being a failure at parenting because he has this insurance system which is his kind of life's work as a brilliant geneticist. And I, I think you can make definitely make parallels to like, I'm sure Fritz felt kind of said, well, it doesn't really matter. I have, this one doesn't work. Not that he wanted his kids to kill himself. I'm not implying that at all. But like, you have to understand when you're putting kids under this pressure, he wouldn't have, if he, I, I really honestly don't think he would have if he didn't have five or six boys to like run through. He treated them like meat and, and you can see, the rusty gives you kind of like that detached sense of like what can happen when nepotism goes really wrong when you are so weighed down by the legacy of your entire existence and like what's one of the more important things that you learn throughout the history of the show is that rusty who is understood to be like a contemporary of Johnny quest and not as famous, but like still well known amongst a certain group of people. He is the one that causes a lot of these rules to happen. Um, for a couple of different reasons. The addendum to the unusual torture act is also called rusty's law. They used to call my dad rusty. How do you think your father knew everything about it? Because he's a genius super scientist. I like to dream too, Hank. All of these things have been created. Um, 
and enforced by these two groups, one of which um, is the Office of Spe- uh, Secret Intelligence, which is the OSI, uh, which is where Brock and uh, eventually Sergeant Hatred come from. And they're the ones that assign like the bodyguards and stuff like that. And the super scientists are represented by them. They're not necessarily good guys. They're protagonists, very specifically. Um, and in charge of antagonist relations, how do I explain this? It's a worldwide cabal of villains. Um, it was also inadvertently created by Rusty's grandfather, who is a colonel. His great-grandfather was a milliner. That's important. <laughs> uh, which it, it kind of, there's a, they have an argument about this all-powerful weapon called the orb. And um, it's supposed to be like a famous, a group of famous men like uh, Phantomos, who is a French uh, villain character from the 18 i think the early 1900s late 1800s uh is one of the people mark twain is involved and uh colonel venture along with oscar wilde are essentially arguing no we can't use this weapon shame this guild was founded to protect and serve man at his best not to be a guild of calamitous and that's where the name the guild of calamitous intent comes from but it is like they do have a decision to make and they kind of agree to disagree uh basically venture the oldest venture lloyd takes the incredibly powerful weapon and they kind of coexist uh the office of secret intelligence elite agency that's been thankfully defending this big ass country since the second american revolution the invisible one they kind of were okay with the Guild of Calamitous Intent until Jonas grows up and forms Team Venture, which is um, like an adventuring group. But it's basically like the four horsemen with literally no morals. Yeah, definitely. They are uh, out there characters. But like I said about uh, Jonas uh, earlier, it's sort of like they typify the style of manliness of kind of the, the, the mid-40s through early 70s where it's like this total commitment to like sexualized violence and scantily clad women and exciting chases with lots of gunfire and stuff like that. Like it's that, you know, the, the uh, team venture sort of went on the ultimate kind of like James Bond style, sexy, exotic adventures where, um, you know, snake charmers uh, send cobras after you with guns or whatever, just that kind <laughs> of incredible 1960s BS. Yeah. And it, it's very like, aspirational in the way that like honestly a lot of baby faces from that time were but when you look back you're like oh wow it's really dark these weren't good people they were just projected as heroes like here is right, the crusher <laughs> yeah, here is the reason that the system exists like very specifically it's this actual moment and this is the monarch explaining see 50 years ago there was this freshman villain called turnbuckle no fancy car no weapons no clue right he shows up at the venture compound and snatches rusty from his playpen or whatever and demands a fight step away from the boy cousin you face turnbuckle my punch is devastating step the fuck away from the boy the guy puts up his dukes like a total douche. So the action man, because he's a full-on psycho, pistol whips him into the ground like a tent pole. And then this turnbuckle, he looks up and says, Kiss my ass! Click. Takes one right in the brain. Not equal. Yeah, like, they're psychopaths. And I, I think they create this idea of, um, I guess you would call it, like, 
codification of things out of a necessity for like people's lives. It's not quite what happened in, in the beginning of wrestling, but it's pretty similar in terms of like, they had to turn it into something that was like repeatedly monetizable and like scalable. And um, because what it used to be was this basically guys would, and it was all guys, uh, guys would be the world champion and they would have these matches that were like not quite fake, but with pre-planned finishes. And they would mix those in with regular matches against real people that had been part of a con the previous day. Basically like, am I, am I being too nice about it? Like, was it all a con or? I think it was mostly to varying degrees, always a con. Uh, But, but I mean, there was just enough legitimacy to it to create the illusion of legitimacy. Yeah. And, and I think that's uh, kind of what team venture, like what the codification, all these rules do is they kind of make it. So you're like, oh, it's okay that we're killing people and it's never okay. And like what they did and what I guess the venture, the the OSI and the Guild of Clementus Tent did is like they realized that you could make real, sustainable, scalable money if you made the carnival cons look like the real stuff by making it using the like mechanism of like, uh, I guess you would call it the staged match. And that's basically what Venture Brothers does is they, they have these two groups and these two groups want to fight each other. So what they say is like, listen, you can fight each other, but you can only do it under these specific rules at these specific times and in these specific ways. And outside of that, you have freedom, but you can't really murder people. You can't really hurt them, to be honest, unless they have it coming. And I think that's like understanding that that's where the Venture Brothers world of kayfabe comes from is really important to understanding why the world is the way it is now, where like everything's breaking at the seams. It's like you can't create a system that's there to contain human nature like it'll never work because we'll figure out a way to get past it, and I think, in the and and that's in the same way that like professional wrestling has to deal with that, and they they can't quite move past the fact that they were started as a con in a way that like movies are a con, but they're not pretending not to be a con. Yeah, I think that cinema is just something that we've kind of bought into, and like we don't expect cinema to be quote unquote real. But uh, wrestling's kind of made its own bed by on, by insisting on itself not being fake for so long. You know what I mean? That you know, wrestling, uh, there's kind of a double standard for wrestling. You know, uh, we expect wrestling to be real in other ways. We in in the same ways we expect other forms of entertainment to be fake. Like when it comes to stuff on TV, like why would anything you see on TV? Think about the shows on USA Network that are not WWE programming. How many of them are real? oh, wait, zero. So why would you expect the wrestling show to be real? And it's not just like straight scripted stuff. Like Chris Lee Knows Best is not a real show. Like it is a constructed reality. Sure, absolutely. That's not that guy's daily life being captured by cameras that just happen to be there. No, no, nothing, nothing is that. That that does not exist. Yes, exactly. And Suits is For good reason. just as much the other way around where it's just like, that is a constructed thing. Yeah, they have sets and stuff like that. That's like they're all TV shows. And I, I think that like yeah. wrestling hasn't moved and to a certain extent they have, 
but not as much as they could where like they still exist in that space in front of the camera right like i think what wrestling hasn't figured out per se and i think actually lucha underground which we mentioned earlier has done the best job of creating a universe that the show takes place in that they can exist outside of the direct like being either in the ring or ring adjacent right you know what i'm saying like yeah Absolutely. I think wrestling for too long kind of tried to hang on to the idea that it was real, that like, no, 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 this takes place in the real world. Like the fans were willing to say, no, 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 we understand if wrestling takes place in kind of a slightly altered reality. But I think for many years, like promoters, like I know Bill Watts is kind of the name that stereotypically uh, flings to mind here. But like there were these old time promoters who in the kind of mid to late 80s were still insisting that, you know, wrestling was something that people clearly understood that it wasn't. And I think that there was this kind of uh, switch that was flipped where wrestling could have been kind of embraced as something that happened in an alternate world. But because they were the ones who insisted it was real, they were the ones who got judged for being fake. Yes. And I think that's kind of an existential, uh, one of the couple of existential questions um, about wrestling. How long can you have and how can you allow these legacies like in the same way in a microcosm? rusty does to dictate your future like can you ever stop trying to con slash kill people if you want and love to con slash kill people for the like sheer fun or thrill of it like is that a possible thing like does vince mcmahon just like conning people do people who does uh mike quackenbush does he like conning people or is it something where they found this medium in the same way that like some people like Sergeant Hatred just exist in the system and are totally fine with it. Uh, but also like are okay with the con and stuff like that. Do, are there people that exist in and out of that system? And can that be built upon? Like, can you, like you said, there was an opportunity to do that. Do you think they can ever go back to it? Or do you think that they're always going to be stuck in that? Hmm. You're asking me to look all the way into the future, like as far as it possibly goes. And that's tough. Um, I think that wrestling needs to look in the mirror and get over its inferiority complexes. And until it does that, it never will move on. Um, and I think we're kind of at the point at kind of the very end of the kind of Vince McMahon era where maybe in the next 10 years we'll see, is there some kind of a reassessment? Like I think if, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen soon. And I, I think that's, it's important because like, <sighs> One of the things, one of the reasons that you're not trying to push further is because once you've reached a certain status, you are inherently fighting for the status quo because you want to keep your status. Like um, one of the big criticisms, that's the word I'm looking at, criticisms of the Guild of Calamitous Intent on the show, The Venture Brothers, is that it's kind of come this bureaucracy that's mostly about like selling insurance. Uh, there's a spe specific character, his name is Phantom Limb, and, and for a long time he's one of the main, uh, he is the number two, but he's really the acting person in charge of the Guild of Calamitous Intent. Um, but he spends a lot of his time doing, like, making money doing stuff like this. I want the Mona Lisa. Look, the Mona Lisa is not a better painting, it's merely a more famous painting. And it was made more famous because it was stolen. And this was stolen, so. What about her uh, famous smile? Whatever, she looks like a horse. It's, it's tidy, you know. It, the, the, the thing is like this big. Really? Yes, really. So this is cheaper by the, by the foot. Because to him, it's about 
keeping the house and the art collection. It's not about being the best villain he can. And for the WWE, it's like maintaining stock prices. And even for the smaller companies in wrestling, it's about uh, streaming subscriptions and DVD sales and ticket sales. It's not like they can risk things per se. And, and I think that that idea of being trying to maintain a certain status quo can be interesting if you're in a world that forces characters to like evolve. That's not always the case. And what I, I like specifically about Venture Brothers is the way that they use institutions that they have to like build or push people, right? Like um, in wrestling, when you want to give somebody a push, you like have them contend for a title. That's the be- that's the most common way still to this day, right? Winning streak, yeah, definitely TV winning streak. Yeah, winning, yeah, 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 stuff like that, or winning a big match against a big opponent that you got after you had a winning streak. Um, and that's not necessarily different in the Venture Brothers. Like one of the reasons Brock, as we mentioned, comes back after he works for a group called Sphinx, uh, uh, comes back to Rusty is that Rusty uh, inherits uh, Venture Tech from JJ when JJ dies because JJ is like the good version of Jonas. Like he dies trying to build a space station to make the world a better place. So like he gives all of his everything to Rusty. And because of that, Rusty becomes like a big deal again in the world of Venture Brothers. Cause he's always kind of just a disappointing loser because he was Jonas Venture's son, but he wasn't really doing anything other than living off of that legacy. So he gets a push, basically, and he becomes a more prominent person in the world of Venture Brothers. And, like, that is an interesting storyline because he now is in charge of this company. And the first thing he does is he decides to basically tank the stock of Venture Tech in order to put all of their emphasis in super science because he really wants to use super science to become, to make the world a better place. And, like, that, to me, is what venture brothers does better and like what venture brothers could teach wrestling is the ability to make new stars which like outside of i guess what you would call 80s and 90s nostalgia mining because that's basically what the show is um their ability to make new stars by giving them pushes within the context of the organization they're in or what, you know what I'm saying? Or their status in the world they're in is like, they do it through actual character development, but they actually move stuff forward. And for anyone that's watched wrestling, this is really hard to do. Like they have done an excellent job of like Gary, Gary in the original first couple of seasons of the show is a henchman named 21. And he's the best named friend named 24. And the thing they're on the show is just like idiot comic relief. Yeah, they're the low characters from Shakespeare. They're like very Shakespearean. Yeah, and then in one of the in the episode uh, at the end of the season three, again, spoiler alert, but it came out in 2008, um, 24 dies. And as a result, 21 goes nuts and becomes like a, a real, he, he what TV tropes would call takes a level and badass. He becomes like an actual badass that like, is able to do things that he was never able to do, but he's also more respected in the world. He like fights Brock and fights him to a draw. He beats up Sergeant Hatred, who's considered like a badass in that world. He does a lot of things. He's no longer considered this like incompetent boob. And they do that because for Venture Brothers, escaping what came before is both for the show and for the characters on the show, like the theme of the show, the writers 
push themselves Absolutely. as far as they can. And sometimes I think that uh, I think that is detrimental, but I think that's the thing that um, they can learn. But I, I think it's not just to say, oh, they should just do what the Ventures Brothers are doing, because you've talked about how this can kind of be detrimental to like what you might like about the show. Like, Well, you've uh, mentioned a lot about the first three seasons throughout the show and like at uh, that point, I thought Venture Brothers was just like the best show on TV. But in the subsequent decade, I've, I've kind of fallen out of love with it. And it's actually because of some of this really deep, really extensive world building that you're talking about. When I go back and I watch those, uh, those episodes in the first three seasons, I see a show that takes place in a great world and there's a lot of thought put into it. But the number one thing thought is put into is being funny. And there's like laugh, like, like there, there are whole episodes where every line is a laugh line and everything you see on screen is a visual joke. They're like golden age Simpsons where they're just some of the densest stuff I've ever seen in terms of just being hysterically funny. But at a certain point in the show, it seemed like they got more interested as creators in kind of this kind of comic book world building piece with, you know, setting up these teams and introducing like hundreds and hundreds of side characters each of whom have their own kind of tolkien-esque backstory and just it, it felt like that was more important to the creators of the show than being funny and that's kind of when i started to lose interest in it and really stopped following it uh, nearly as closely which is funny because you know from a writer's perspective i can tell objectively that like some of the quote-unquote best stuff was done in you know the fifth season or whatever but but just it just wasn't as fun for me anymore because they had gotten so into trying to do something great and trying to do something really smart that it felt like they'd lost sight of, of being fun. Yeah, and I definitely think that's – I am somebody who's who's kept up a lot more with – you've watched, but like I love – it's still my favorite show. And I think for me, I like that. I like the willingness to not – you – and I don't want to cast aspersions. I'm not placing a value judgment. You watch it more as a comedy show than I guess I did. And I think that's important is that you kind of have to sacrifice when you make a comedy, you have to be willing to sell out your characters for jokes. It's just how it works. The only show I have seen not do that is Parks and Rec. And that's not nearly, that became much more of like, I don't want to say a dramatic show, but less of like a sitcom and more of a show that happened to be a comedy. I, I think it's very hard to write a comedy or to a lesser extent to write a wrestling show where you you either have to sell out your characters for jokes or to advance storylines when you need them to be advanced or never do that because if you do it in between that's when you get in trouble with shows because people have a lot of trouble tempering that the way they need to to like build stars because what happens is especially in wrestling and i think we can both agree on this they hold on to stars for way too long and are afraid to make new stars. Sure, inertia, right? Uh, yeah, inertia is strong in wrestling. The object that's moving is going to stay moving. The object that's staying still is going to stay still. And I think that actually uh, what they've done the best recently is is that like handing the baton, they're starting to get better. But I think what Venture Brothers does and what I think wrestling can learn from shows like the Venture Brothers is that like you can take individual characters and use the legacy of the world and the institutions of the world to push people as individuals within the context of that show. 
But the important thing is to understand that you could only do that with a specific people and you can't do it for everybody all at the same time. And I think that's the thing that the Venture Brothers has done that's the problem is that they've made a background story for everyone. And I, I think ultimately wrestling has to learn how to pick stars and make decisions. And, and speaking of decisions, I, I think now is as good a time as any to decide to end the episode. Uh, so Dave and I will be back with some recommendations uh, for our Thinky podcast segment. But for right now, we are going to play a clip from next week's episode, which will be on postmodernism. Uh, this is from the 1990, uh, 1997 episode of Raw is War. It is Vince McMahon explaining that his television show that he's been doing for four years is going to change. It has been said that anything can happen here in the World Wrestling Federation, but now more than ever, truer words have never been spoken. This is a conscious effort on our part to open the creative envelope, so to speak, in order to entertain you in a more contemporary manner. Even though we call ourselves sports entertainment because of the athleticism involved, the key word in that phrase is entertainment. The WWF extends far beyond the strict confines of sports presentation into the wide open environment of broad-based entertainment. All right, so here we are at our Thinky Wrestling Podcast Roundup. Uh, just got one clip for you this week, uh, something real short, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, it comes to us from the J.J. Dillon Show, as in the former manager of the Four Horsemen. Uh, it's from episode 31, which uh, originally aired back on January 25th. Uh, once you get that episode of the J.J. Dillon Show downloaded, you're going to want to go to the 58-minute mark and listen from 58 minutes to one hour and two. Um, this is just a great little conversation about the law of diminishing returns. Uh, they're just talking about shock and awe in entertainment in general, in wrestling in particular, talking about sort of escalation of violence and sex and how you sort of have to be careful uh, with the kind of uh, bigger pieces of entertainment. Like everybody likes violence, everybody likes sex, but uh, they do the example of one week you go through one table and then a couple of months later you have to be, you know, jumping off the roof through a stack of tables. But it's a very, very good discussion about escalation and the law of diminishing returns. So check that out at the 58 minute mark on uh, episode 31 of the J.J. Dillon Show. That's my only uh, Thinky Wrestling podcast roundup suggestion for this week. And I actually have one. Um, the press box on the Ringer Network with David Shoemaker and Brian Curtis is is great because they bring a wrestling sensibility to it, uh, especially David Shoemaker, who's obviously the masked man. Um, it's As somebody who really likes sports media discussions by people who aren't stuck up their own ass, I, I really like it. Um, and it does give you, they do discuss things and think about things in a, in a wrestling context in terms of like personas and, and not necessarily at the level this show does, but like you can definitely see uh, Shoemaker's background in, in wrestling writing as like the basis for a lot of his theories. Um, and yeah, this was a really fun episode. Like I said, next week we will be, uh, not sorry, next week. Uh, and like I said, uh, next episode we will be doing uh, an episode on postmodernism, which I'm very excited. We may have some special guests. We don't know for sure, so we don't want to guarantee anything, but uh, we hope to he uh, see you then or have you listen. I don't know. Um, thanks. Oh, my God, look at this place. It's like a museum of failure. It's almost depressing. Here I am in the belly of the beast, and I don't even care. I don't even feel like taking a whiz on this. 
I used to dream of taking a whiz on this. So I guess we're uh, not gonna... What can I do to this guy that life hasn't already? I almost feel sorry for him. Mm. A lot has changed. I was meaning to talk to you about things, us. Oh, no, you don't! Take it easy. Get down, honey bun! No one gets the drop on the monarch! With every fiber of my being, I stab at thee! As long as blood flows through this heart, I will hunt you down! I will be the stuff of your children's nightmares! What's he doing now? He's making his dramatic exit. <sighs> this could take all night. I'm gonna get Brock. Oh, I think he's almost done. And then, when nothing can be heard but your cries of agony, I will pull the chain and let the beast devour you! Mark my words! I will have my revenge! Dr. Venture!